vital importance that we have an understanding of the context of which the scriptures are written. With each book of the Bible, we must consider who is the author, to whom was it written, when was it written and under what circumstances, and lastly, do we fully understand the subject matter? Problems may occur if we misunderstand some, or indeed all of these key areas, and this will of a surety hamper our understanding of the scriptures. However, when you do grasp that these, concept, uh, these concepts, the scriptures then begin to open up. And you can come to a realization that a, a large proportion of the New Testament writings are given to illustrate the warnings of the divine judgment that was to befall upon the nation of Israel. But the warnings of AD 70 are not just confined to the New Testament. We have prophecies of great significance as far back as Deuteronomy, and we've just taken a reading from there. And we'll look at this in a short period of time. But it must be noted from the outset that the things that we're going to be looking at are by no means pleasant. And to some, the idea that the Heavenly Father would bring about this dreadful catastrophe to the nation of Israel, well, it leaves a bitter taste in their mouths. However, they are the ways of providence, and they are without question divinely instituted to bring about the Heavenly Father's plan and purpose with this earth and mankind upon it. And as Christadelphians, we should have an understanding of this, uh, that this is not a new concept. For we can uh, consider the, the Old Testament writings. For example, in Isaiah 45, we read, I am the Lord and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. And in Amos chapter 3 and verse 6, we read, Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord have not done it? Surely the Lord God will do nothing but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. Now, although neither of these two quotations are directly related to the events of AD 70, they do show the principles of what God had done. He had revealed his secret unto the servants, his prophets. And we are privileged to be in a position to be able to consider the scriptural record that we have in front of us. I guess that the first question that may enter our minds, though, is why? Why would God punish the nation that he had chosen? Well, the quick and simple answer is that they had gone against his will. And later they had put his son to death. The nation of Israel are described as a uh, in the scriptures as a stiff-necked and rebellious people. Nevertheless, they were and are to this very day Yahweh's chosen people, God's chosen people. Turn with me, please, to Jeremiah and chapter 30. So Jeremiah chapter 30, and we want to go in at verse 11, where it says there, For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all nations, whether I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee. But I will correct thee in measure, 
and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. And this is why we have the events of AD 70. They were a punishment and a fulfillment of prophecy as far back as Deuteronomy chapter 28, which is where I'd like for us to turn to now, please, the reading that we had. And as uh, Brother Matt had described, Deuteronomy chapter 28 is often labelled the chapter of the blessings and the curses. And this is where we find our first prophecy of AD 70. The first 14 verses here in this chapter are given to the blessings. And um, you would only need to look at the first verse to be able to see this for yourself. But it is to the curses that we must turn to, the remaining 54 verses, in order to find our prophecy. For the nation of Israel failed to uphold the commandment in verse 14, not to go serving other gods. So we will start at the beginning of the curses in verse 15 for context. Deuteronomy 28 verse 15 says, But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. And if you come forward to verse 45 now, it says, Moreover, all these curses shall come upon thee and shall pursue thee and overtake thee till thou be destroyed, because thou hearkenst not unto the voice of the Lord thy God to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded thee, and they shall be upon thee for a sign and for a wonder, and upon thy seed forever, because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart, the abundance of all things. Therefore shalt thou serve thine enemies, which the Lord shall send against thee, in hunger, and in thirst, and in nakedness, and in want of all things. And he shall put a yoke of iron upon thy neck, until he have destroyed thee. The Lord shall bring a nation against thee from, uh, from far, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flieth. A nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand, a nation of fierce countenance which shall not regard the person of the old, nor show favour to the young. And this is exactly what happened. And our history books confirm this for us. God was to put a yoke of iron upon the nation of Israel's neck. A yoke in the scriptures refers to a restrictive device um, that is used to bring someone or, or something into servitude or subjection. Many years ago, we would have seen yokes used in farming to control the oxen as they work the fields. They were also used on slaves to keep them under bondage. But this yoke, as we have read, was made out of iron. And if we were to have more time then we could have looked into Nebuchadnezzar's image, we could look at Daniel chapter 2, where we read of the legs of iron. And this was to be the fourth great empire, which we know from our studies to have been the Greco-Romans. The eagle was also a very prominent figure, um, a symbol for the, for the Romans. And we see it represented here. And Rome, uh, the, the, the eagle was a prominent symbol that was used on an aquila. And it was used as the standard or the vexiloid for the Roman legions. Each legion would have had its own aquila 
and this will be carried by a legionary known as an aquilifier or eagle bearer. They would carry this standard in order to show the commander the legion's position. And so the Romans began their involvement in Jerusalem in 63 BC. And by 40 BC, the Roman Senate declared Herod to be king of the Jews. Herod was a savvy and uh, politically minded man. And soon he began to expand his kingdom and he obtained a vast area of the nation of Israel, as you can see on the map in front of us. And he appeared to be a very able ruler over what is notoriously uh, a very rebellious nation. Following his death in 4 BC, Herod's kingdom was divided between his three sons. And we can see this on, the, on, the, on this map, and it shows that the lion's share of Herod's kingdom, which included Judea, went to his eldest son, Archelaus. And we can see this happen in the scriptural record. If we go forward to the New Testament this time and go to Matthew and chapter 2, where we can see how Joseph received the news of, of Herod's death as they sought refuge in Egypt from his tyranny. So Matthew and chapter 2, we read in verse 19. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. For they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose, and took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. However, Archelaus, was, he was not as able as his father. And after just 10 years, due to his own incompetence, his own population appealed unto Emperor Augustus. And with that, in AD 6, he was dismissed. And the area of Judea became part of the Roman province. And with that, became subject to all of its laws and taxes. And with that, the yoke of iron from verse 48 in Deuteronomy that we've just read, was firmly put around Israel's neck. And it was during this period of time in the scriptures that we find a young man by the name of John the Baptist, preaching by the bank of the River Jordan. Scripture tells us that his raiment was of uh, camel's hair with a level girdle about his loins. It also says that his food was locusts and wild honey. John did no miracles, but he did preach with great power and authority, repentance and baptism for the remission of sin. And this was a new doctrine that was providing troublesome to the Pharisees and the Sadducees of that time, as it undermined the corrupt systems that they had been put into place. His preaching was fiery. And it caused many of Israel to come and hear him. 
and to be baptised of him in the River Jordan. We're already in Matthew, so if we come forward to, to Matthew chapter 3, and we'll go in at verse 7. Matthew 3, verse 7 says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who have warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance. Think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. And we know from our studies that trees relate to people. And this in the Greek is, is the word dendron, which is in the singular, and it represents the individual peoples of this nation. And so he says, and, and now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth forth not, uh, bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Notice here that there are three baptisms that are mentioned. There's a baptism of water for repentance and remission of sin. Secondly, there's a baptism of Holy Spirit that the apostles were to receive from Jesus Christ. And thirdly, there is a baptism of fire that Jesus would bring upon the nation. But look what he's to do. It says here, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, these were damning words indeed, and they held a stark warning. O generation of vipers, who have warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It was a fiery judgment that was to come. It was a baptism of fire. And this was to involve two distinct classes of people. Did you notice? There was the, the wheat class, those that would uh, brought forth fruit meat for repentance that believed and were baptized these were they that were to be gathered together into the garner and then there were the chaff class those that did not bring forth good fruit who would be burned with unquenchable fire and we can get a better understanding of this um, as it is expounded in greater detail via an explanation of a parable quoted by Jesus during his ministry. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is asked to explain the parable of the tares to his disciples. And his reply is somewhat revealing to what we have just looked at. So if we go in at Matthew chapter 13 and verse 36, we read, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The world here in the Greek is the word cosmos. It refers to the Jewish world, the Jewish order of the age. 
He says the good seed, or if you like, the wheat for the garner, are the children of the kingdom. But the tares, the chaff, are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, or better translated, the consummation of the age. And the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares or the chaff are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world, the consummation of the Jewish age. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels and they shall gather out. And take special note of this because this is a very important point. They shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity. This was a time of a gathering out, not a gathering in. This sentence cannot be attributed to any other time period other than that of AD 70. And it was also prophesied back in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 64, where the scripture record states, God shall scatter or the Lord shall scatter thee among all people from the one end of the earth, even unto the other. But now look what he goes on to say. They shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. It was a furnace of fire. It was a baptism of fire. It was a judgment. And this judgment was to be meted out by the angels who were sent forth by the Son of Man, none other than Jesus Christ. What did he say to his disciples shortly before he was received up into heaven? All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. You must remember that the Lord Jesus did not pray for the world, the Jewish world, but he did pray for them which the Father had given him. He prayed for his disciples, those that were faithful and that would hear the word. But for the Jewish order of that age, he had quite the opposite message. Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, we'll go in at verse 33. He says to them, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom ye slew, between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. And this is exactly what happened. The Pharisees and Sadducees persecuted the apostles. They considered their teaching to be treason. But it was also damaging to their own corrupt systems that they had put into place. And we may consider Stephen, who was stoned to death 
for his teaching in the temple. That this Jesus, he said, this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and he shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. But Jesus also prophesied of this very same thing. If you are still in Matthew, look at verse one of chapter 24. I put it up on the screen as well. He says, and Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Jesus said unto them, see not all these things. Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. So what actually happened? How did the Romans scatter the Jews? Well, we are in a very privileged position to have well-documented records of the events that took place that were written by Josephus, who is said to have been a highly influential Jew of that time. He was a contemporary and an eyewitness of these catastrophic scenes, and he has left for us an amazingly complete record. So my aim now is to give you a brief account of the events of this time in question. And we have already established that the nation had become a province of Rome. And as a result, it becomes subject to its laws and taxes. Well, this did not sit well with many of the Jews. And over time, there became outbreaks of rebellion caused by anti-taxation protests and growing tensions with the pagan Greeks and the Roman citizens that now lived with them. And so in AD 66, the Roman general Cestius Gallus marched from Syria into Judea. And this was in an attempt to fend off civil war and to restore calm in Israel. But despite his initial advances proving successful, he would ultimately fail. For in his subjugation of Jerusalem, at the very point of victory, Cestius Gallus inexplicably withdrew his army. And in this reaction, this action renewed the, the courage of the Jewish rebels who recovered their arms to counterattack the retreating Roman legion. It is believed that some 6,000 Romans were massacred that day and the legion's Aquila was lost. It was taken by the Jews. This was a great embarrassment for Cestius, who had managed to escape unharmed to report the cat uh, catastrophic actions to the Emperor Nero. The Jews now had renewed vigour. They had defeated the Romans. Many were now convinced that they had deliverance from evil, that the Heavenly Father had protected them like he had done previously with, with David, with Elisha and, and many others. As a result, the rebellion grew stronger. There would have assuredly been scoffers in that day saying, where is the promise of his coming? They would have belittled the preachings of Jesus and the apostles. But the day of the Lord would come as a thief, as it was prophesied. The Jewish political heavens were to be taken away. Everything was to go including the temple, which we have mentioned earlier. 
Nero believed that Cestius's incompetence as a general was the cause of this shock defeat. And this provoked the emperor into appointing a military veteran by the name of Vespasian to suppress the Jewish rebellion. Vespasian at the time had been ostracized by Nero. And now this was apparently due to him falling asleep during one of Nero's musical recitals. But such was Nero's desire to restore honour to Rome that only Vespasian's vast military experience would do. And so in the spring of AD 67, Vespasian arrived in Ptolemy, and hopefully you can see that on the map there, it's up by Galilee. And he arrived in Ptolemy with his fifth legion that he had in inherited from Cestius. And he also had his own 10th legion that was considered the most distinguished of all. It was here that he was joined by his son Titus. And his son Titus had with him the 15th legion, thus creating a vast military power on the northern edge of Israel. Now, by the autumn of AD 67, Vespasian and his armies had subdued the province of Galilee through many violent battles. And this meant that he could now concentrate all his efforts on the province of Judea and the prized city of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem at this time was considered as a stronghold because it was very rich in food supplies. Vespasian was informed by his commanders that factional fighting had broken out in Jerusalem between two rival Jewish factions and that now was not the best time to attack. But Vespasian's reply was interesting. He claimed, sorry I, I got that wrong, he said now was the best time to attack. Vespasian was told by his commander that now was the best time. But Vespasian's reply was so interesting because he actually claimed God was fighting for the Romans and that it would be far better to leave the Jews to wear themselves out in their own seditions than to unite them by attacking them. This was to prove to be such a wise decision as murder and pillage became rife throughout Jerusalem. Dead bodies lay in the streets public terror prevailed. In fact, the situation became so dire that nobody even had the courage to weep for their dead or even bury them. For anyone suspected of sympathy for them were immediately put to death themselves. Jesus had pre-warned his disciples of this very time while sat upon the Mount of Olives. And we've already been there if, you're, if we're in Matthew 24. So let's read on in verse 15. Matthew 24 verse 15 says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him 
which is in the field, return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall there be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Now this was good and practical advice to those that understood the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, and that were watching, and that were waiting for the abomination of desolation. They were to leave all of their possessions behind in order to escape past the Jewish factions and not to be seen as a deserter. Vespasian then began the task of subduing Judea and the surrounding areas of Jerusalem. And by the summer of AD 68, he had completed his task. Jerusalem was now completely isolated. An escape seemingly impossible. Vespasian himself returned to his headquarters in Caesarea on the northern coast of Galilee to gather his forces together and to make the final arrangements for a full strength assault on the city of Jerusalem. But upon his return, news had reached him of the death of the Roman Emperor Nero. So he decided to postpone the campaign on Jerusalem pending further instructions. Now the events that were to follow were divine determinism, that which was decided in the heavens. They would both offer up the opportunity to escape the city and at the same time would lead to its ultimate condemnation. Meanwhile, during this period of time, the factional fighting had, in Jerusalem had worsened. One of the factions had split, meaning that there were now three factions, all fighting against one another. The fighting had become so desperate that they resorted to the use of fire. And this would prove to be the principal calamity to the city that would not just see houses burnt to the ground, but also the granaries that contained several years worth of corn. And it was this that was the primary cause to the famine that was to beset them. Rome, though, was also going through a time of much trouble following the death of the Emperor Nero. The events of, uh, in Rome that are to follow are described in our history books as the Year of the Four Emperors. Civil war began to break out under the new emperor Galba due to his tyrannous ways. In fact, Emperor Galba had appointed Vitellius as governor of the Roman province in Germania Inferior. And this action produ uh, produced discontent as it was seen to be a sign of distrust by the legions of that area. The revolt began to pick up momentum. And soon the six legions of both Germania Superior and Inferior acclaimed Vitellius as their new emperor. And with it, they swore their loyalty to him. In fact, by the time Vitellius began his 
uh, usurpation of Emperor Galba, he had a further four more legions that had pledged their allegiance unto him. Vitellius then made plans to march on Rome and dispatched half of his army to take the imperial throne for himself. Whilst his troops were en route, news had reached him that Emperor Galba had been assassinated and succeeded by a new emperor. This time it was the Emperor Otho. Otho was a, an ambitious and greedy man who had sought an opportunity to take the throne. This he did by bribing the emperor's unhappy Praetorian guard. But Otho was not a man of war. He had heard news of Vitellius, is the uprising by Vitellius, and so he dispatched emissaries to intercept and propose a deal for peace. The deal was met by deaf ears, and so civil war raged between the armies. Otho's troops gained early success, but were soon overawed by Vitellius's vast, ex vastly experienced military. Emperor Otho could see no future for himself, and so he subsequently committed suicide. General Vitellius had taken the throne by force and was then declared emperor by the Roman Senate. The news angered Vespasian and his soldiers. And his soldiers then uh, forced Vespasian to accept the title of emperor by drawn sword. Further civil war then erupted between the opposing armies of Vespasian and Vitellius. It was eventually concluded in the late winter of AD 69, when Vitellius was finally captured, tortured, and then killed. The people of Rome finally acclaimed Vespasian their new emperor, and this news reached him whilst he was residing in Alexandria. Vespasian immediately made plans to sail back to Rome following the winter. But more poignantly, he also gave the commandment to his son Titus to go forth with hand-picked troops to finally take Jerusalem. What an absolutely remarkable series of events that happened there, offering the opportunity for the Jews to escape. But now the time was drawing to a close as Titus marched the 15th, the 12th and the 5th legions down to the north, uh, northeastern edge of Jerusalem, where they encamped upon Mount Scopus. They were then shortly joined by his father's infamous 10th legion, who encamped to the east of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives a position that could clearly be seen by all of Jerusalem. And I hope that you can see each of the positions on this map that we've got in front of us. The Roman negotiations for a peaceful solution with the people of Jerusalem were disregarded. So Titus advanced the 15th, the 12th and the 5th legions to the western edge of Jerusalem, leaving the 10th legion 
on the eastern edge of the Mount of Olives. Now this I believe is remarkable and I will show you why. We're still in Matthew 24. We read from verse 27, we read, For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming, the perusia, the presence of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles, the Romans, be gathered together. It's fascinating. It is said that as the Roman army stood there on the eastern and the western edges of the city, ready to do battle, clear spots on either side, up on the, on the, on the mount, that their armour was glistening in the sunlight on either side of the city, just as it was prophesied in Matthew. And so Titus and his Roman legions began to make slow progress on their siege of Jerusalem, but were soon encouraged by news from deserters that increasing famine was taking hold of the city. Titus now decided to employ a different tact. They would build walls around to prevent the Jews from escaping. And thus, they would starve the city. Within three days, the soldiers had erected these walls and a deafening silence had begun to settle across the city as famine consumed the people. It is said of Titus when he saw the valleys around the city full of dead bodies that he spread out his arms to heaven and called out unto God to witness that this was not his doing. Nevertheless, his plan had worked and famine had reached the ultimate depth as it was prophesied in Deuteronomy 28 and verse 53. And thou shalt eat the fruit of thine own body, the flesh of thy sons and of thy daughters, which the Lord thy God hath given thee in the siege and in the straightness wherewith thine enemies shall distress thee. Horrible words. But these things happened. And these, this news in particular troubled Titus. And he vowed that he would bury this abomination beneath the ruins of the city. And so the siege proceeded with more vigour and progress against the famine ravaged Jews began to increase. The Romans had now reached the heavily fortified temple and many violent assaults were repelled from both sides, leading to its eventual standoff. Titus then called a council of war to determine the outcome of the temple and it was decided that they were going to spare it as an ornament of beauty for the empire. Orders of this effect were to be issued to the army but this was not the divine way. The divine will if you remember what we had said previously about Jesus and Stephen The Roman army were enraged by continued Jewish attacks coming from the temple. And before these orders could reach them, 
An over-exuberant soldier threw a burning piece of wood through the temple window and the temple caught on fire. Titus himself hastened to the temple and ordered that the fire be extinguished immediately. But it was too late. The fire extended and the blaze engulfed the building. And in a short time, the temple was burnt down to the ground. The Roman army had now captured the vast majority of Jerusalem. And before long, the whole city was at their mercy. With the city under their full control, the Romans began to pillage and to loot. And some historians record that the Roman soldiers even lifted the stones of the temple to retrieve the gold that had melted down between the cracks. This being a fulfillment of the prophecy that we had read earlier in Matthew chapter 24. Not one stone shall be left upon another. This they did before finally setting Jerusalem ablaze. It is estimated that of those that had not heeded to the warnings, that some 1.1 million Jews were killed. And a further 97,000 were taken into captivity. What a sad state of affairs that is. Titus was unable to preserve the temple as an ornament of beauty for his empire. It was simply not the divine will. But upon his return to Rome, he decided to commission an arch to commemorate his achievement. And we can see this arch still standing to this very day, showing all the artistic detail of the torment and the pillaging that happened in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, we must not forget that all of this was divine determinism. Think back to our quotation from Jeremiah in chapter 30, where it was written, Though I make a full end of all nations, wherever I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee. And now consider the days in which we live. The Jews had been forced out of their land and scattered around the world following the events of AD 70. But in all of this, they retained their nationality. And nearly 1,900 years later, in 1948, the Jews returned to their land in part. This in itself is an amazing feat. But consider the words of Jesus. With men, it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. The baptism of fire came upon those that did not heed to the words spoken through Jesus, John and the apostles. So we must take the lessons from this. We must prepare. We must align ourselves with those faithful Jews that were baptized into Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. So as spiritual Israel, we may obtain to the promises made to Abraham and his seed. This was just one of many prophecies that has already come to pass. And there are but a few more left to be fulfilled before the reestablishment of the kingdom 
If you would turn with me, please, to our last quotation in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30, we'll go in at verse 1, where we read, And it shall come to pass, when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations, whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and shalt return unto the Lord thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day. Thou and thy children, with all thine heart, with all thy soul, that then the Lord thy God will return thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God have scattered thee. If any of thine be driven out unto the utmost parts of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee and from thence will he fetch thee. The Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed. And thou shalt possess it, and he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. The question is, brethren and sisters and interested friends, Will we heed to the word 